Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your discipleship in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Cross. Good morning, Kit. Hey, good morning, everyone. Hope that everyone listening is having a wonderful Saturday. You can catch us each Saturday here on Relevant Radio AM 1330 at 11 a.m., but if you miss an episode or want to catch up on past episodes, just visit our website at mncatholic.org slash podcast. You can also find the Bridge Builder podcast on SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play. Each week, we try to bring you a great interview on some of the major issues impacting how we live our faith in public life. We also answer your questions through our mailbag segment, and you can always email those to us at show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org or contact us on social media. And it wouldn't be the bridge builder if we didn't provide you with practical ways that you can become a missionary disciple and build the common good brick by brick, and we call that our bricklayer segment. Today we're delving into a topic that is certainly uh, tightly wound into the political controversies of the day and sometimes partisan politics, and that's question of climate change, the environment, environmental stewardship. Oftentimes we think of the hot-button issues like abortion or same-sex marriage or gender identity or religious freedom as being part of the culture wars, but certainly environmental questions are tightly bound into the modern clashes of partisan politics. What we want to try to do is help provide Catholics some principles for thinking about through these questions, avoiding avoiding either or uh, perspectives and bringing truly a Catholic perspective into questions about the environment, climate change, and stewardship. Joining us today, we're blessed to have Dr. Daniel DeLeo. He's the Director of Justice and Peace Studies at Creighton University and an expert on theological ethics and questions at the intersection of theology and the environment. And he's written a lot about Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si, so a great person to have with us to unpack this issue a little bit more. Welcome, Dr. DeLeo, to the Bridge Builder Program. Thank you for having me. I appreciate the opportunity. You're a theologian who has focused on environmental ethics and climate change. How did you get interested in these issues? Why did you decide to make that your academic uh, focus? I was in college. I went to Cornell University for undergraduate and at the time was discerning religious vocation. And in my junior year, I took a class on environmental ethics, and they were talking about how, in general, it's the poor and the marginalized who are most impacted by environmental degradation, and that's especially so with the issue of climate change. Um, and as a, as a lifelong Catholic, I had never heard that in terms of my faith. So I literally just started doing my own research. I googled Catholic and environment and climate change. And once I saw the Church's rich tradition on understanding ecology and climate change in terms of essential to our faith tradition, it was something that I began to become more interested in and ever since have, uh, have made it uh, basically my vocation and career. So it's been, been a, a wonderful journey thus far. You give presentations on the climate crisis. I think that brings up a lot of images for people. How would you describe exactly what that is and its actual impacts? Well, I think, unfortunately, we've shifted from talking about climate change to, as you say, talking about the climate crisis, or Pope Francis used uh, the language of climate emergency this summer in an address he gave to oil and gas executives. And the issue of climate change is so complex in terms of the science, in terms of the causes and consequences. Ultimately, from the perspective of our Catholic faith, climate change is a moral issue. And I think what's important to remember up front is that this is nothing new 
for the Catholic Church. A lot of people seem to think that the Church's concern for ecology and climate change began in 2015 with Francis's encyclical Laudato Si. Um, but in 1990, uh, St. John Paul II addressed climate change in his 1990 World Day of Peace message. Um, Pope Benedict XVI did the same thing in uh, 2009 in his encyclical Caritas and Veritate, and again in 2010 in his World Day of Peace message. So I think it's important to just name that up front, that this is nothing new for the Catholic tradition. And it's a moral issue from several perspectives. First and foremost, as Christians, we have this mandate, uh, which we read in Genesis 2.15, to cultivate and care for creation, in part because creation is innately, intrinsically good. It has its own innate value and worth. In the creation narrative, God declares all of creation to be good uh, at the end of each day, and that's before humans are ever created. And so the interpretation is that um, creation has its own value irrespective of human utility. And so climate change and the effects of climate change violate and injure the the goodness of creation. So from that perspective, climate change is a moral issue. It's also a moral issue because it implicates core commitments of the Church's social tradition. It implicates the commitment to protect human life and dignity. It disproportionately harms the poor and vulnerable. It undermines the common good. So in terms of the principles that frame the Catholic approach to ethics, climate change is one of those issues that unfortunately touches on and really injures all of the principles that, um, that undergird and sustain our Catholic faith. Dr. DeLeo, I think that some Catholics and some folks out there, they hear perspectives in the media, you know, 11,000 academics or scientists say we need population control. They see pantheistic and atheistic elements in the modern environmental movement and are skeptical of it. I think the points you're making underscores the importance of why the church should be more proactive in wading in. But what would you say to a, a skeptic or a Catholic that concern about the environment or speaking about these questions is, is really worshiping the creation and not the creator? Unfortunately, I would I would say that their understanding of the Church's teaching on this issue and, and the centrality of it to our faith is mistaken. Unfortunately, as I said, this, this goes back all the way to Genesis 2.15. This is nothing new for our faith tradition. And as I said, from, uh, well, really since Paul VI to John Paul II to Benedict XVI to Francis, this is a, a quote-unquote, a green thread that's woven throughout the tapestry of our faith. So this is about respecting and recognizing the presence of God, the Creator and Sustainer, in all of God's creation, uh, and recognizing that as creatures, we are intrinsically connected to all of creation in ways that mean environmental degradation inevitably impact human flourishing. It, it, uh, it impacts human persons and communities. Building off that last question a little bit more, how then would we as Catholics, you know, in in terms of speaking and offering this perspective into the public conversation, how would we respond to that group of 11,000 scientists or, you know, the people with bumper stickers that say, leave no trace? Is it leave the right trace? Or what's the how does the Catholic environmental ethic, how can it respond to the excesses of the environmental movement? Sure. Well, I think one thing that we have to get straight within our own tradition is the notion of dominion and subdue. 
So in Genesis 128, we read that we're called to exercise dominion over creation and to do creation. And unfortunately, this has been misinterpreted through incorrect exegesis as kind of a divine mandate to do whatever we would want uh, to creation, as if it's some object for us to control. And this is something that Francis addresses head on in Laudato Si'. In terms of correcting that, part of what we have to understand as informed Catholics is is the hermeneutics that help us apply that teaching to today. And in order to do that, we have to understand what was actually meant by those original passages. The word subdue in Hebrew uh, is kabash, and kabash means to neutralize a hostile threat. And so you can think about in terms of the life of the biblical author, the world was kind of a hostile place, right? People didn't walk down a paved, well-lit sidewalk to go to the grocery store. They were, um, you know, always one famine or one animal attack away from injury or worse. So the word subdue is understandable from that perspective, but subdue means to neutralize a hostile aggressor. That's different than going beyond simply simply self-protection, right? So if somebody comes after me and I, and I were to grab them and pin them to the ground, I would have effectively subdued the hostile threat. If I would have then gone beyond that and started to punch the person repeatedly until they were unconscious, I would have done more than just subdue. So in terms of understanding what subdue means, it means that we're called in some way to exercise a relationship over creation, but it does not in any way provide license for divine exploitation. So that's important to understand. The other thing that's important to understand is this notion of dominion. The Hebrew word is radah, and it effectively means delegated authority. So you can think about it in terms of a diplomat, a political diplomat who has delegated authority to speak on behalf of, you know, an administration or, you know, a principality or whatever. And so a diplomat can't just say or do whatever they want. They have to exercise the ethic and the intent of the person who's given them the authority. Well, in order to understand our authority as Christians, we have to understand who has given us that authority. And of course, that authority has been given to us by God, who is love. As we read in First John, God is love. God is the loving, creating, sustainer of the world. So in that sense, dominion doesn't provide a sort of license for exploitation. So in terms of correcting that, I think in-house, we have to get that straight. In terms of then looking at engaging people outside of the faith tradition, I think it's important, and this is, this is something that I work as a consultant with Catholic Climate Covenant, which is an affiliate of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, and we talk about this on our website. We talk about population control, and we talk about how any response to climate change from a Catholic perspective has to be consistent with the Church's moral teaching on other issues, including sexual ethics and reproductive ethics. And so from a Catholic perspective, it's about stewarding creationship adequately while also being guided by the Church's moral teaching. I think what's interesting about the issue of population, as you've brought up, is that there are even secular environmentalists who say that the issue of population control is really a distractor because the issue of climate change is so urgent that we have more or less a decade to cut carbon pollution in half. And so in looking at population control, that's something that isn't even on the time frame in terms of effectiveness of what needs to be done to mitigate the climate crisis. So I think that's important to remember. And then also from the perspective of justice, the issue of population control doesn't get at the fact that it's generally people in the global north with stable birth rates that are responsible for causing climate change. We in the United States have one of the highest per capita carbon footprints. So in talking about 
population control in reference especially to the global south, those aren't the places and persons who are most responsible for climate change. So in a lot of ways, the, the issue of population control especially is just it's a red herring that really di- distracts us from effectively addressing the issue. We're speaking with Dr. Daniel DeLeo, Director of Justice and Peace Studies at Creighton University, and we're talking about environmental ethics, the climate crisis in Laudato Si. Dr. DeLeo, you mentioned the the statistic or the data point that often we hear that we've got about a decade or uh, the famous Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. We've got 12 years uh, before we have sort of a quasi-apocalyptic scenario. Can you unpack what I think folks are confused about what that means and are kind of scratching their head going, what do you mean we've got a decade? What, what What's going to happen in a decade? Can you help us understand that? And maybe that sure. will uh, clarify or crystallize why people talk about a climate crisis. Sure. So I think it's really important to understand. And Representative Ocasio-Cortez is, is one person that people are, are familiar with. But the background is coming from the world's top climate scientists. Most recently in October of 2018, the Nobel Prize winning Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change published a statement or published a, uh, a report called Global Warming 1.5C. And essentially, the summary looks something like this. Climate change is driven by the greenhouse effect. The greenhouse effect is a natural process. The earth is covered by an atmosphere of greenhouse gases. It's keeps the earth about 60 degrees warmer than than it would otherwise be. So that's a good thing. The problem is that carbon and other greenhouse gases are polluted as byproducts of human activities, especially fossil fuel combustion. And so since the Industrial Revolution, which was powered by fossil fuels, we have increased atmospheric concentrations of greenhouse gases beyond levels that we've ever seen in the history of humanity. And so as you would expect, we've seen a corresponding warming trend that can only be accounted for when you consider human activities. Um, If you hold other variables, neutral solar output, Earth's orbital axis, and things like that, you can't account for the warming we've seen. We've increased global temperatures by about a degree since the Industrial Revolution. Where the tipping points or where the, the crisis language comes in is that with respect to the climate system, there are what scientists call feedback loops. And by this, they talk about or they recognize the phenomenon that warming causes warming. So, for example, ice, the chemical composition of ice, traps greenhouse gases. And so as you melt ice, as you melt glaciers and ice sheets, which we've done as a result of warming, you begin to release some of these greenhouse gases that were once trapped into the atmosphere. So it's like you're building more and more coal-fired power plants. In addition... For example, ice has a high albedo, so which means it's reflective, relatively speaking. So uh, for those in Minnesota, when you go to the Minnesota State Fair, you wear lighter colored clothing because it reflects the sun. Well, as you melt those glaciers and you melt those ice sheets, you expose darker colored soil beneath the ice, and that darker soil absorbs more heat. And so the planet begins to warm and warm as an effect of the initial process of warming. And so these positive feedback loops have brought us to the brink of what scientists call tipping points. And these are points beyond which warming effectively can become out of control. These feedback loops uh, can become runaway and irreversible. And so this is the language that the science community is, is using and talking about when they reference the climate crisis. The tipping point that's been identified as mitigating or minimizing the risk of runaway climate change is 1.5 degrees 
Celsius. So that's 1.5 degrees of warming relative to the Industrial Revolution. And as I said, we've already warmed the planet about a full degree. So we've only got about a half a degree left before we cross this threshold and begin to run the risk of runaway climate change. And so in order to, uh, to stay below that level, what the science community and especially the IPCC in this report from October indicated is that the, is that the world has to cut global carbon pollution by about half between now and 2030. So we've got 11 years to cut our carbon, our global carbon footprint in half, and then the world has to go carbon neutral by 2050. So these are obviously unprecedented changes or would require unprecedented changes, but the effects of not doing this, as I said, run the risk of an existential threat to, uh, to humanity that, again, would implicate all of the commitments of Catholic social teaching. And so I think that's really helpful explanation. Thanks for that. So what happens? What does this look like if we don't meet those goals? Uh, unpack that's, that for us a little bit. That's that's the that's the million dollar question. Um, the IPCC report has um, there's a projection. There's a series of projections. Um, looking at different scenarios, um, whether the world has one degree of warming or two or three or four or five degrees of warming, uh, potentially even beyond that. Um, and I don't think what, what, what I don't think a lot of people understand is, is the severity and the gravity of what that would entail. Three and four and five degrees of warming is a different world. Um, at that point, you're talking about the collapse of the West Antarctic ice sheet, and you're talking about um, sea level rise of 10 and 12 and 16 and not unreasonably 20 feet of sea level rise. Um, about half the world's population lives within 100 miles of a coastline. Um, so you're talking about cities like Miami and Boston and Mumbai um, being underwater, as in Atlantis gone, not just flooded and they have to deal with it like Superstorm Sandy in New York. This is underwater gone. And there are maps um, online that NASA has provided that, that give people a visual of what this looks like. So, um, And of course, this then would trigger all kinds of um, secondary humanitarian effects. So you, you're looking at um, you know displaced persons and climate refugees. And um, there's been a study that estimates that um, runaway climate change could cause $2 billion, with a B, uh, climate refugees by 2100, um, 2 billion displaced persons who are uh, having to relocate, having to um, potentially compete for increasingly scarce water, increasingly scarce food. Um, and as we know, when there's scarcity uh, between people and persons, um, that inevitably leads co to conflict. And so this is why um, the U.S. Department of Defense has repeatedly called climate change a threat multiplier um, as a threat to security. Um, so this is all. These are all the ways in which climate change um, is related to the the core elements of our Catholic tradition. Um, and I think what's what's most important, and what's I think most often overlooked, is that the effects of climate change are not equally borne. Um, it's the poor and vulnerable who are most um, most likely to be impacted by the effects of climate change. Um, the communities that lack the social and the political and the economic capital. Uh, to be able to uh, mitigate uh, the, the challenges or mitigate the reality of climate change, adapt to its effects. Um, and unfortunately, and this is where it's kind of a double tap of injustice, 
Um, these are often the communities that are historically least responsible for climate change. Um, the United States has 4% of the world's population, and yet we account for about a quarter of um, historical carbon pollution um, since the Industrial Revolution. And so as the wealthiest nation on Earth, um, we bear a disproportionate responsibility for causing climate change. Um, and so we have a disproportionate responsibility uh, to help solve the problem, which is exactly what Pope Francis, drawing on um, decades of Catholic teaching, says in Laudato Si, um, which incidentally is what I say to my three-year-old. If you break it, you fix it, or you at least um, lead the process of help fixing it. So, um, And this also, in terms of the principles of Catholic social teaching, implicate our commitments to protect human life and dignity. Um, the World Health Organization estimates that climate change causes 100,000 deaths um, around the world annually um, through things like uh, malnutrition, diarrhea, um, heat stress, things like that. Um, and they estimate that between 2030 and 2050, climate change could cause an additional 250,000 annual um, premature deaths through uh, these increased health impacts of climate change. Um, so as people who are committed to protecting human life and dignity, this issue is um, is is one that uh, any anyone who considers themselves to be pro-life uh, has to be concerned about, um, which again is consistent with decades of our Catholic teaching. Dr. DeLeo, this is a really helpful unpacking of the issue. Um, one might be inclined to get overwhelmed by the gravity of the problem mm-hmm. and the way you describe it. What are Just briefly as we wrap up here, and we don't have a ton of time, but what are some practical things that people can do on their own to start the change? How, how can p- sure. individual people not get overwhelmed but actually make an impact on what's sure. going on? So, so the Catholic tradition distinguishes uh, what the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops calls the two feet of love and action. Um, so in that, they talk about charitable works and social justice. And charitable works are um, the expressions of love whereby um, we help people in need, those immediately in front of us. And so this is ministering to somebody experiencing homelessness. Um, and that's wonderful. In the Catholic tradition, though, we have to also be concerned and committed to social justice. And this is understood as systems, as changes and reforms to systems and structures and policies. Um, And so with respect to ecology, charitable works might be something like turning off the lights or taking a shorter shower, um, things like that. That's all wonderful and necessary, and it's important in terms of, you know, cultivating individual virtue. But this issue, especially of climate change, is so overwhelming that we are not going to individually bike our way out of this issue, um, out of this crisis. And so we are going to need um, social justice, and we are going to need um, political engagement and uh, legislation. And so this is why um, the USCCB has supported, uh, for example, the Paris Agreement. Um, The USCCB continues to support um, the Energy Innovation Carbon Dividend Act, um, H.R. 763. So in in terms of practical things that folks can do, I think it's um, it's certainly important to you know do all the things on the micro level. But I think um, the issue that we're facing, the issue that humanity is facing, um, necessitates and requires political engagement and political advocacy um, on the state level, on the federal level. So I think um, in terms of prioritizing actions, I think political advocacy and engagement. Um, guided by uh, the Minnesota Catholic Conference and the USCCB, I think is the single most important thing that folks can do in terms of um, adequately caring for our common home. 
We've been joined today by Dr. Dan DeLeo, Director of Justice and Peace Studies Program at Creighton University. He's helped us unpack uh, Catholic principles for addressing the climate crisis. Dr. DeLeo, thanks very much for being with us. You're also an affiliate scholar with the Catholic Climate Covenant, another good resource for learning more about the issue. Thanks for being on the Bridge Builder Program today, Dr. DeLeo. Thanks for having me, Jason. God bless your work. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, and now it's time for our mailbag segment where you send in questions and comments about what's going on in the public arena. So today's question deals with the removal of monuments. Around the country, we hear about monuments or sometimes paintings of historical leaders being torn down or relegated to sort of less public places. And sometimes these leaders were Catholic, but not always. Is this simply wiping away history, Jason? And as Catholics, should we be advocating for the removal of monuments or maybe just the opposite? Should we be advocating that they stay? It's a great question. And we get questions like this that, you know, what is the church's position on the removal of monuments? Well, uh, like a lot of things in life, it depends. First of all, it's important to recognize why monuments exist. Uh, Why do we erect monuments? Because they tell our story, uh, whether as a church or as a people. I mean, uh, St. Peter's Basilica in Rome is an incredible monument uh, that uh, memorializes great figures in church history. There's also an obelisk, an Egyptian obelisk, set up in the middle of uh, St. Peter's uh, Square as well, with the base of it inscribed, Christus Vinci, Christus Regnant, Christus Imperat. Um, with a cross on the top of it, um, really highlighting in the way in which the Christian faith uh, both conquers, but at the same time uh, Christianizes and baptizes the noble elements in uh, pre-Christian civilization or pagan civilization as well. So monuments can be used for a, a number of purposes to tell our stories. And today, of course, we're uh, wrestling with questions around um, monuments that in some places in the South extol Confederate heroes like Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson. Here in Minnesota, we're dealing with uh, places that have been uh, have historically Native American names that have been renamed or anglicized. What do we do with this legacy? The painting of Father Hennepin that was in the governor's reception room in our state capitol was removed and put into a, a third floor gallery, for example, and then contextualized. How do we approach these things? It's important to recognize why monuments exist and what's going on when we remove them or want to remove them. What stories are being told or retold? And I think at minimum, we can say the movement around uh, some monuments, uh, rightfully so, to be removed because they were symbols and erected as symbols of oppression. Some of the monuments in the South, of course, were put up precisely in the uh, post-Civil War or Reconstruction era to still exercise uh, or to communicate dominion over African-American populations and people in the South to say we're still in, we're white and we're still in charge. So those need to be seriously rethought and in many cases have already been removed. But what happens when we're removing Christian symbols uh, from our state capital and putting those up in third floor galleries and then contextualize? What are we trying to communicate? We once wanted to communicate that, for example, the coming of Christianity and Father Hennepin, the blessing of St. Anthony Falls was a cornerstone part of our story and the origins of our state. 
that is now being removed? What is that communicating? So each monument and each uh, debate uh, is, offers some interesting questions of reflection about who are we as a people? What is behind the drive to remove those monuments? And so it, it kind of depends on a case-by-case basis. There's nothing wrong with removing monuments per se or erecting new ones, but what are we communicating? And that's what really needs to be developed and thought out more clearly. Wonderful. And we have just another minute before we go, and we want to provide you with some practical tips to start living out faithful citizenship. Well, it's especially important in light of our conversation with Dr. DeLeo to think more about the principles of integral ecology and how we can be good stewards and nurture within ourselves that ecological conversion to walk with the two feet of charity and justice. So again, want to highlight our resource, Minnesota, Our Common Home, that has a study guide version that's just come out, along with an ecological exam that you can use to examine your own practices and work with regard to ecological stewardship, a cornerstone aspect of our discipleship in these times. And if we read the signs of the times, we can't help but speak into this environmental question. Whatever your whatever your perspective is, it's an important part of the conversation and one in which Catholics need to play a part. That's all the time we have for today on The Bridge Builder Show. We'll be back again next week with your comments, questions, and another great interview. If you have want to send those questions in, show at mncatholic.org. Again, that's show at mncatholic.org. Remember, you can catch up on past episodes online at mncatholic.org slash podcast. Thanks again for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, and for Kit Cross of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, have a great weekend.